Shall we pray together before we begin tonight? Father, we just want to thank you that the day is coming when the golden age is going to break forth on this earth. Father, when all will be quiet except for the voice of God issuing forth into the land and into the whole earth from Jerusalem. Father, we just want to thank you that you haven't finished with this earth. But the, the earth has a history, and the history is a wonderful history. Father, thank you for this golden age which we're going to discuss tonight. And we just ask in the name of Jesus that the reality of the work that you are going to accomplish may really hit us with full force. Father, I do ask in Jesus' name that even now your Holy Spirit will anoint each one of us and that, Father, in the name of Jesus, we might be given spiritual insight into these things. Father, come and by your Spirit teach us even tonight. By the blood of the Lord Jesus, we ask it. Amen. 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 Happily, we are now finished with the period that we've called the Tribulation. And tonight we begin our studies in the next phase of God's plan for the earth, the phase that is called the millennium. The millennium, the word millennium is spelt as follows, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-U-M, and it comes from the Latin word for 1,000. And it, it is a period of 1,000 years when the Lord will reveal his rulership on the earth. Now actually, in our studies, we've reached the time when Jesus has returned to the earth. And those of you who've been with us for the whole series will not be surprised to know that when Jesus comes, he sees before him a scene of desolation upon the earth. Not only have the ravages of the curse done their worst, but also the warfare and the persecution, which has been uh, so rampant during the tribulation, has left scars all over the face of the land. Now, the millennium that the Lord establishes is a golden era. It is an era of perfect environment. And so it's obvious when you see those two that Jesus has to do a major work of restoration and of reconstruction before the millennium can actually begin. And tonight, quite simply, we are going to see some of the stages in the restoration. When Jesus comes to this earth, he starts restoring the earth and certain things are done which corrects the course of earth's history and I want to take these just in about five points so that we'll understand what is going to happen to this planet earth on which we move and live and have our being at the moment all right let's uh, just go through these and let's discuss each one the first point of restoration that the Lord does is this he has to deal with his arch enemy, the devil. Actually, the first point of restoration is he deals with the whole satanic trinity. Do you remember that in the tribulation we see that the period of seven years has been dominated by three characters that we have called the beast, the false prophet, and the third, who is really the ringleader of them all, who is Satan himself. Now we've seen what the Lord does with the beast and the false prophet. We've read that together in Revelation 19, right at the end of Revelation 19. He takes them both and he casts them into the lake of fire. But Satan does not suffer the doom of the lake of fire at that point. <coughs> Satan has something different. So the first thing the Lord has to do is this. He deals with the satanic trinity and specifically with Satan himself. Now to see this first point of restoration, and this is the most important point of restoration, let's turn to the book of Revelation and chapter 20, and we'll read from verse 1 to verse 3. Verse 1 to verse 3 of Revelation chapter 20. Could I say this right now? When John writes about the millennium in Revelation, he does not give many details about it. The Old Testament gives most of the details about the millennium. What John is interested in is first of all establishing the fact of the millennium and secondly 
um, he's interested in establishing its duration. That is, that it will last for 1,000 years. So let's read from verse 1 to verse 3, and you'll notice it has to do with what happens to Satan after the second advent of Jesus Christ. And this is what John says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled, and after that he must be loosed for a little season. And here, if you take this literally, and we as a fellowship do, it's quite plain what happens. The Lord um, deals with Satan by sending an angel who binds Satan, removes him from the face of the earth, and locks him up in the bottomless pit, as it's called. You'll notice what it says. They shut him up and set a seal upon him. In the ancient world, if uh, you put something into a cave and it was something you wanted guarded, you used to roll a stone over the mouth and put your seal on it so that you could make sure no one at all was going to get in there and tamper with what was in there. And the fact there's a seal on it shows us that Satan is completely inoperative as far as the earth is concerned for 1,000 years. And then do you notice the little phrase that he should deceive the nations no more? And you might wonder why that is put in there. Why should John concentrate on the fact that Satan should deceive the nations no more? The reason for that is this, that Satan at the moment has jurisdiction over the earth. And specifically, he has made sure that he has his fallen angels, they are the demons, over each country on the earth. And these demons are trying to act upon the history of these particular countries and actually uh, make sure the history goes Satan's way rather than God's way. Do you remember, we've uh, seen in our studies of various books, including Daniel, that there is, for example, the prince of the power of Persia and the prince behind Greece, for example. And every country on the earth today has a demon over it which is trying to win that country for Satan. And what that shows in verse 3 is this, that Satan's power to affect the history of the nations of the earth is stopped. And this is also an indication and a hint about this fact that the, all the demons are locked up at the same time that Satan himself is locked up. So the earth and the history of the earth is suddenly released from any influence that Satan could have upon it for 1,000 years. And you'll notice it occurs at the beginning of the 1,000 years. You can't have a golden age if Satan is still around and still affecting the earth. Well, we take it literally, and it's quite obvious. Could I say at this point, there are a group of people who are called amillennialists who do not believe that there will be this 1,000-year reign of Christ. And these people believe that instead of it being a future period of 1,000 years, that the church is now the kingdom. The church is the millennium. That's how they express it, you see. Well, I have news for you if you've been thinking about amillennialism. Revelation 20 is the hardest passage for them because, you see, they have to try and explain away the locking up of Satan. If the church is the thousand-year reign, if the church is represented by the millennium, then it's obvious that Satan must have been bound before the church came into existence. That is 1,950 years ago. And that for 1,950 years, Satan has been inoperative, apparently. This is uh, very difficult for those of us who actually live on planet Earth uh, to believe. They would, for example, um, say, yes, when Christ defeated Satan, that was what bound him up, and he has not been able to deceive the nations uh, since that time. Well, in their books, they come to Revelation 20 and they have to spend page after page after page after page after page trying to explain away the symbolism in this, you know? And they have a very difficult time. For example, in verse 1, I saw an angel. They would say that angel actually represents Christ. It's the work of Christ that binds Satan. So they say, well, the angel here is Christ. Um, if you go to verse 2, and bound him... 
well, they would say, well, not completely bound him. They said they, he bound him a lot, but not completely. So you see, he's still on the earth. This is what they say. He's still on the earth. He's still got power, but it's limited now. So instead of being bound, he's partially bound. Um, then, in the middle of verse 3, that he should deceive the nations no more. Well, they say he doesn't deceive them as much now as he used to before the cross, you see. Well, any student of history has to look and say, well, I can't really see too much difference between those things. One of their number expresses it very wonderfully, William Cox is an amillennialist, and he says this, oh yes, he says, Satan really is bound, but with a very long chain. Oh, that is a direct quotation from his, one of his books. And you know, when I was looking into the whole millennial issue, I rejected amillennialism because of Revelation 20. It really seemed to me that if you have to go to the length of saying an angel is Christ, that deceived means deceived not so extensively, bound is partially bound, I really thought that uh, you were on a loser. And I think just on Revelation 20, you should reject amillennialism. Taken literally, it's quite obvious. Satan will be bound. And there is a literal 1,000 years ahead. Uh, wonderful years for the earth. Actually, the New Testament declares that Satan is not bound in this uh, present age. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, it actually says that Satan is the ruler of this present darkness. It actually says that. In 1 John 5.19, it actually says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. These are direct statements. So we know full well that Satan at the moment is not bound. But his days are numbered, and the day is coming when the Lord himself will, will send forth the command, and Satan will be bound. He will be totally inoperative as far as the earth is concerned. So the first stage of restoration is when the Lord himself deals with Satan and he takes him off the face of the earth and he locks him up and he's not let out for 1,000 years. The second stage of restoration then comes and it's this. The Lord removes unbelievers from the earth. The Lord then removes the unbelievers from the earth. When the Lord returns, he sits in judgment on all the people who are alive on the surface of the earth. And he separates the believers from the unbelievers and he purges out the unbelievers. This happens just after the second advent of Christ. Now we've actually dealt with this division of uh, believers and unbelievers on the tape called The Baptism of Fire. But let's just turn to Ezekiel 20 and read the passage that deals with judgment of the Jews. Ezekiel chapter 20, and beginning verse 33, so taking the Jews first. Well, in the Old Testament, it says the Lord hisses for them. The word hiss, when used in the Old Testament, actually means he whistles for them. As soon as he lands on the earth, he actually sends out a whistle and he gathers all the Jews from every nation of the earth and brings them back to the land of Israel. Verse 33, this is what he then does. Ezekiel 20:33, As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and I will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered, with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I, and the King James says, plead with you face to face. The word plead means to sit in judgment upon and to give a verdict. In other words, he sits in judgment upon the Jewish nation. Like as I judged your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I judge you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels, and them that trespass against me. I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord. 
And that is the removal of the unbelieving Jews from the earth. Other scriptures speak of it. Do you remember in Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, which is a verse that Handel used in the Messiah, he actually talks about the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes. You see? And he says, who shall stand when he appears? You see? Who can abide the day of the Lord? Who shall stand when he appears? And then he says, for he is like a refiner's fire which purifies the gold. You heat up the gold and all the rubbish floats to the surface and you skim it off. And so he will do with the Jews. And he, say it goes on to say, he is like fuller soap, which gets, of course, the dirt out from a white and clean garment. So he will do with Israel. In Matthew 3, verse 9 onwards, uh, Jesus spoke of that. He said to the Jews, he said, I will baptize you with fire, he says. And when he talks about it, he says, just like separating the, the chaff from the wheat, that's what I will do with you. And the believers will be left on the earth, but I'm going to remove the unbelievers from your midst. The Gentiles too are judged, and they are separated. We've already seen that, I think, in the second advent of Christ, on the tape, tape on that. And do you remember in that tape, we went through to Matthew 25, and there were the Gentiles in front of the throne of the Lord. And he separates the believers, which, who, who he calls the sheep, from the unbelievers, who he calls the goats. And what does he say? To the sheep who are the believers, he says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. But to the unbelievers, he says, Depart into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That is done at the very beginning of the millennium. So the result is this. The unbelieving Jews go, the unbelieving Gentiles go, and on the surface of the earth, at the beginning of the millennium, you only have believers, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. You'll notice that is exactly what you find with Noah's flood. Do you remember before Noah's flood, when the rains came tumbling down, there were believers and unbelievers mixed. When the rain of judgment came, all the unbelievers were drowned and were removed. And when the ark finally settled, Noah and his family, who were believers, came out onto a land which had been cleared. Just after Noah's flood, there were only believers on the earth. So, at the beginning of the millennium, only the believers continue to exist on the face of, of the earth. There they are. The unbelievers are removed from the earth. This is the second part of the restoration. And by the way, every one of those believers has tremendous spirituality. Can I just show you, turn to uh, Joel chapter 2, so go on from Ezekiel to Daniel, then to Hosea, <clears throat> then to Joel. Go to Joel chapter 2, and here is the passage that Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. And a passage that we studied before. This is fulfilled at the very beginning of the millennium. First of all, read from verse 30 to 32. Verse 30, 31 and 32 deal with the events just before the second advent of Jesus Christ. And we've seen that at the end of the tribulation, these will come true. Joel 2, 30, 31 and 32. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, which are described, of course, in the book of Revelation. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Now all that will occur before the t great and terrible day of the Lord. But go to verse 28. Instead of before, you then get the word afterward. So verse 30 to 32 is before. Verse 28 and 29 is afterwards. And this is what will happen to the people 
who are all believers who go through into the millennium. Look what happens. It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God was not poured out on all flesh. Only upon the believers who were ready to receive him was he poured out. But in this day, every single person left on the earth, they're all believers, they're all going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a wonderful day. We're going to see it. I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. So the millennium starts with all believers on the earth. All right, let's make it clear again. I think I must repeat this. Those people who are believers, who manage to get through the tribulation and are still alive at the second advent of Christ, they do not die. They live then for another thousand years on the face of the earth. Thrilling. All the unbelievers are removed and the believers go through and people the earth in the millennium. And by the way, these believers, they have children, they have grandchildren. There is a massive population explosion on the face of the earth during the millennium. And all of their children and their grandchildren, they all have to make their own decision for Christ. And we'll be seeing uh, some of that next time. But there they are. Only believers exist on the earth at the very beginning of the millennium. Fine. Now that's the second one. So the first one he deals with Satan. The second one, the second stage, he removes the unbelievers. The third stage is this. He then deals with death. Three, the Lord... I'm going to use the phrase pushes back, pushes death back. The Lord pushes death back. Now I've got to explain what this means. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 it actually says that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death itself. And this is a strange remark but one that's quite obvious when you've studied the Bible. And it's this, every person who has lived on the face of the earth has suffered death or will suffer death at some time, except of course for the church who are alive at the coming of the Lord. Death has got in its grasp every person who's ever lived so far on the face of the earth, excluding the present generation. Now, they're all under death's uh, power. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death, and it will only be destroyed when there isn't one person left in its power. So we've got to look at uh, how death is actually pushed back. In the Old Testament, they believed it was easy. They thought that there'd come a wonderful day when all of a sudden all the dead would suddenly rise, one fell swoop, you know? And they were expecting the resurrection from the dead. And they thought the believers would rise at the same time as the unbelievers. The believers would have eternal life. The unbelievers would go into everlasting uh, death, you know, into the lake of fire. And there'd be a separation. It, they thought it was just one event. In fact, of course, it was the life of Jesus and the New Testament that taught us that that's not true. That actually, death is defeated in several distinct stages. You see? In fact, it will be defeated in four distinct stages. We know two of them. The first stage of death being defeated was, of course, when Jesus rose from the dead. Right? Here was Jesus. He came as a man. He died. For three days, he was in the realm of death. And do you know what happened? It was almost as if God came along and pushed open one of the fingers of death and extracted the Lord from the power of death. And Jesus rose with a new body, a glorious resurrection body, and the glorious thing about him was this, he would never die again. Every other person up to this point who had been resurrected from the dead was going to die again, 
like Lazarus, for example. But Jesus was never going to die again. He who was the head of the, the body, the head of the church, he was suddenly released once and for all uh, from the power of death. And do you know, death must at that time have really panicked. He suddenly realized, or it suddenly realized, that one person had escaped. Now that was the first stage as far as the defeat of death was concerned. The second stage we've dealt with in this course, and that is when the church is raptured. And that's going to be a glorious day. Every single person who's believed on the Lord Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost is all of a sudden going to be released from the grip of death. Hallelujah. Thrilling. And the church, which is the body of Christ, is going to be removed from that realm. And here you have the head rising and the body rising, Jesus and the church completely liberated. And we call this, of course, the rapture of the church when all those who've died in Christ and all those who are still alive at the, the coming of the Lord will be gathered up together and will be released. Now, they're the first two stages. It's the third stage that affects the beginning of the millennium. All right? And to see it, we've got to turn back to Revelation 20 and verse 4, where we see the third stage. Revelation 20 and verse 4, right at the beginning of the millennium, this is. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither have received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. Now, who are these people? These are all the believers who've died in the tribulation. You remember that we've seen that... Thousands of people get saved in the tribulation period. And many of them are persecuted and put to death. It is those that are dealt with in verse 4 here. They haven't worshipped the beast. They haven't received his image. Neither received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. They lived and they reigned with Christ for 1,000 years. So see then the tribulational martyrs. rise from the dead. And that occurs at the beginning of the millennium and they reign with Christ. All right, what Revelation doesn't tell you and what other parts of the Old Testament tell you is this, that at exactly the same time all the Old Testament saints rise as well. Abraham suddenly comes up, resurrection body. Job appears. Joshua appears at exactly the same time. John the Baptist comes up as well. How do we know that? Well, let me show you. There are two main uh, parts of the Old Testament that tell us. We have time to deal with one. And let's have a look at it in Job chapter 19. Job, you remember, is just before Psalms. All right. Job chapter 19. And you, this is a most marvelous passage where Job is explaining his faith, what his hope is set upon. Job 19, verse 25. Job, the earliest book of the Bible. This was written before any other books were written. And look what he's talking about. For I know, in verse 25, that my Redeemer liveth. A reference to the Lord Jesus himself. I know my Redeemer liveth, he says, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And there's the second advent of Jesus Christ. You see? Amazing, isn't it? The first book of the Bible, and what's it talk about? The second advent of Jesus Christ. We've seen this in Jude, haven't we? Where Enoch actually talks about the second coming. You know, and some people say that prophecy isn't important. Amazing. Here is Job, the second advent of Christ. And verse 26, And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And then he says, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my emotions be consumed within me. 
He says, I won't know what to do with myself. It's going to be so exciting. But he says, listen, even though my body is going to be consumed by the worms and be destroyed, yet in my own flesh I'm going to see him. My own eyes are going to see him, not anyone else's. And can you see here, tied up with the second advent of Christ is also Job's hope in resurrection. And the second advent of Christ and Job's hope for resurrection are, are put together because they will occur at exactly the same moment. And Job is saying here he will receive a resurrection body. It's not going to be the old body. The worms may have destroyed my old body, but I'm going to get a brand new resurrection body and I'm going to see him in my flesh. I will actually be able to appreciate the Lord. That's a lovely passage. So what does it mean? The third stage in uh, death's defeat is this. The tribulational martyrs are raised and the Old Testament saints. Up, they all come. And at the beginning of the millennium, we're going to see David. We're going to see Abraham. We're going to see all of these wonderful characters, right? Got a few questions to ask Hosea, I must say. <laughs> we're going to see them all. There they are. Uh, we don't have time, but if you want to read another passage for yourself, Isaiah 26, verse 19 to 21, deals with it. Now, can you see, with Jesus risen, with the church risen, with the Old Testament saints and the tribulational martyrs risen, all believers are now released from the grip of death. There isn't one believer held by death anymore at the beginning of the millennium. The only people still held are the unbelievers. And the fourth stage in death's defeat comes at the end of the millennium. Unbelievers raised at the end of the millennium. All right, and when they're raised at the end of the thousand years, they're then judged, and of course they're removed. And at the very end, death holds absolutely no one. Believers have been gone a thousand years, now unbelievers are gone. Death is totally defeated, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. All right, so there's the third section. The Lord pushes death back. Not only is he risen, not only has the church been raptured, but now all the Old Testament saints and the tribulational martyrs are all raised too. That's the fourth stage in restoration. Death is pushed back. The fourth stage is this. The Lord relaxes the curse on the earth. The Lord relaxes the curse on the earth. Those of you who know Genesis 1 to 3 very well will know this, that Adam, when he was created, was created as Lord over the whole earth. He was, he was to have power over everything that was on the face of the earth. But when the day came, which is recorded in Genesis 3, that Adam rebelled against his Lord, the Lord allowed creation to rebel against Adam. And from that day on, nature suffered a distinct change. Before the fall, the earth produced without any effort at all. All the trees were bountiful, the climate was superb, whatever Adam needed, he could get. It was so easy, life was just fine. After the fall, he suddenly found that nature was hitting back. And he found now, to get any produce out of the land, he had to really struggle. The land was saying, no, I won't submit to your lordship, Adam. You're going to have to coax me into it. And Adam had to go out with his fork and his trowel and try and coax the earth, as I try my best to do, to bring up just a little potato or a cabbage or something like that. And he found that not only did it need coaxing, it actually was fighting against him. Thorns suddenly appeared on certain uh, rather naughty plants you know? And he suddenly found that weeds would appear where he had put in good seed. He found that the climate had deteriorated and he now found that certain animals, which before had been his friends, now were ferocious and actually growled at him when he came near. Eventually, of course, those animals actually became meat eaters and started killing one another for food and even killing human beings. Now, Romans 8 tells us that the creation was subjected to that because of Adam's fall. The disobedience of Adam caused that problem. 
Now, when Jesus arrives on the earth, who's the second Adam, his obedience relaxes the damage that Adam had done on the face of the earth. And if you read in the Old Testament, you get the most marvellous picture of what's going to happen. Everything changes, you know. Could we just see a few scriptures? We won't deal with many. There are so many, it would just be like a list of scriptures. Um, Turn to Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 1 and verse 2, look what it says. A marvellous promise. This will happen in the millennium. The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them. The desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Every desert on the face of the earth will suddenly become productive again. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And you know, it's no, uh, no mistake that underneath the Sahara is the biggest supply of fresh water that is found anywhere uh, on the earth's surface. It's just below the earth's surface, just below the desert. And all that's going to happen at the beginning of the millennium is the Lord will split the Sahara right across and all the water will run, rush up to the surface and it will be turned into one of the most fruitful parts of the earth. There it is. Even the des- desert is going to blossom like the rose. That's a change in nature. Uh, go to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51 <clears throat> and verse 3. Isaiah 51, verse 3. Another passage that deals with this. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Everything is going to be turned upside down. And don't turn to it, but let me just read you the last three verses of the book of Amos. Look what it says. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper. It's going to be such wonderfully fertile land. They can't wait to get the harvest in because there's another harvest that can also come up on the land. And the treader of grapes, him that soweth the seed. And the mountain shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Isn't that lovely? It's going to be, they're just going to give all of their produce. The, the honey, the, the milk, the wine is just going to flow down, all of them. And I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. And suddenly uh, nature becomes fruitful again. And on the earth there is going to be such prosperity, a perfect environment on the face of the earth, with every place giving forth the produce that it should have given forth all along. There's going to be a change too in the animal kingdom. Today, there are certain animals that are deadly as far as man is concerned. In the millennium, there will not be. All right? Turn to Isaiah 11, and let's read a passage on that. Isaiah 11. And from verse 6 to verse 8. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. Not going to be deadly enemies anymore. The leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child is going to lead them. So you say, oh, David, or whatever your little boy is called, or whatever your little girl is oh, David, look, there's a wolf. Why don't you go out and stroke him? And out he'll go. You know, there'll be no ferocity in any of these animals. Uh, There's going to be peace in the realm of nature. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. All those animals that have been meat eaters will suddenly become herbivores and they'll start eating vegetation. And the sucking child, here's the child that's still on the breast, shall play on the hole of the cobra. The cobra, a deadly snake. And the child, oh, where are you, dear? Oh, that's all right, you're only with the cobras. <laughs> Amazing. 
You see? Because the venom's going to be removed. And the weaned child, who's a bit older, shall put his hand, it says in the King James, on the cockatrice den. It's actually the puff adder. You know, the puff adder's den. There is going to be none of the animosity that you find today. Now, some people read this, they say, well, I can't believe that. And Christians, too. Oh, this has to be picture language. But do you realize what you're saying if you say that you don't believe this is possible? You're also saying, therefore, you don't believe in the Garden of Eden, as it was. You see, nothing like that is impossible. God's the great creator. He can do as he pleases with his creation. And of course this is possible. Actually, there was a wonderful book which was published in 1956 and it had the title of Little Tyke, T-Y-K-E. And it was written by a man who had a very difficult job on his hands. The man was called George Westbow and he lived in a place called Auburn, in Washington State. And uh, he had a difficult job because a certain lioness had rejected her lioness cub. And he had the job of bringing up this lioness cub, you know, wondering what he could feed it on. And being a Bible believer and knowing this passage and believing it literally, he thought, I wonder whether I can make a vegetarian out of this lioness. And the, the book, Little Tyke, describes what he did. At first he fed this uh, lioness cub a mixture of cereals and raw eggs and milk. And it fed on that. It was so successful that he then added certain other titbits. Uh, grass was added, for example. And you know, by the age of four, this book describes how Little Tyke was no more little. Uh, little Tyke, after four years, weighed 352 pounds and it grazed in the fields with the cows. <laughs> and in this book, you have a picture of this lion eating grass just like a cow would eat grass. And there it is, among all the other animals. And the man found to his amazement that this vegetarian lioness had absolutely no killer instinct whatsoever. And there are pictures in this book which show this lioness lying down with, the, with lambs and playing with them has no killer instinct whatsoever. You see, that man was rather delighted because he tapped that potential that he knew was in that type of animal. And the book was written just, of course, out of interest because he found it uh, rather an interesting pursuit. And his, the end result was fascinating as far as he was concerned. But it shows us that the potential's there. But of course, it's going to be the return of the Lord himself that's going to release that potential. And so it shall be over the whole face of the earth. All of nature is going to be wonderfully changed and passages like Isaiah 11 are going to be wonderfully fulfilled. There's going to be blessing for man as well. Every man will own his own vine. Every man will ha have enough to drink and enough to eat and there will be full satisfaction on the face of the earth. And the other thing is, as part of uh, this number four, the re relaxation of the curse, the lifespan of man is going to be increased again. Do you remember how before the flood, the Bible records that people lived for hundreds of years. Methuselah lived for 969 years. It is going to be that way again. And the vast majority of people who live on the earth in the millennium will see the beginning and the end. They will live for 1,000 years. You see? And of course, when the children are born, they are going to live for the rest of the millennium. That's found again in Isaiah. Isaiah is the book on the millennium, really. Turn to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65 and verse 20. And in verse 20, you get a wonderful description talking about the millennium. There shall be no more thence an infant of days nor an old man that has not filled his days. Then he goes to explain on to explain what he means. For the child shall die an hundred years old. Now what does that mean? That means this, that, that if a person aged a hundred die, they think a child's died. They say, oh dear. And they mourn in the way we would mourn for the death of a child. Because he just hadn't had any life, only a hundred years. <laughs> you see? So a man who dies at a hundred, it's going to be like the death of a child to them. And the last part, 
of this verse is very badly translated. It says, but the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. But literally, it says this, he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. In other words, any person that dies before a hundred will have actually contradicted the law of God and God will have removed him as a sinner from the earth. And do you know, as we will see next time when we deal with the type of society that is on the earth, there is capital punishment on the earth in the millennium. And any person who sins against the Lord, he is removed from the face of the earth. So any person who doesn't reach the age of 100, everyone will say, well, he must have been a sinner. For God to have removed him like that, his sin must have been very great. You see? And that's what that verse means. Well, the vast majority of people will actually live for the period of the millennium. Now, there it is. All right, so the fourth thing is the Lord relaxes the curse on the earth. And the fifth thing and the last thing I want to deal with is this. Um, Jerusalem... and the land of Israel are changed. Distinct geographical changes as far as Israel is concerned. And we find that in Zechariah and chapter 14. So turn with me to Zechariah 14 and in verse 8 and verse 10 we see some of the changes that will occur. Zechariah 14 Verse 8. And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem. Living waters, by the way, are springs of water. Suddenly, all sorts of springs of, of fresh, sparkling water are going to burst forth out of the rocks at Jerusalem. And it's going to be an abundant stream of this very fresh water. And it will flow from Jerusalem outwards. And look how it's going to flow. Half of the living waters will flow towards the former sea. That's the sea on the east, which is called the Dead Sea. Half are going to flow to the Dead Sea. Half will flow to the Hinder Sea, which is the Mediterranean. And this gives us a remarkable result. Uh, if I draw a very quick map of Israel, like that, and the Jordan comes down, here's the Dead Sea, and we've got the Red Sea right at the bottom. What happens is, uh, Jerusalem will suddenly have fresh water flowing from it. Now, the fresh water runs, half of it runs to the Dead Sea, and it fills up the valley of, of the River Jordan. And actually, it then flows down into the Red Sea at the bottom. So the whole valley is going to be filled with this fresh water. And then the other half is going to flow through the valley that we saw created when Jesus returned and landed on the Mount of Olives. It will flow out to the Mediterranean. And can you see what's going to happen? There will be a freshwater canal connecting the Mediterranean and the Red Sea here at the bottom. And the chances are that Jerusalem itself will become a sort of port during the millennium, you see, of fresh water. All of this salt water is going to be removed and the whole area will just blossom because of this fresh water springing up from Jerusalem. Now that's what verse 8 says. And then it ends in, by saying, in summer and in winter shall it be. In other words, these springs are never going to stop flowing. And then in verse 10, we see another distinct change. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. And this is the most amazing thing. Every mountain and hill in the land of Israel is going to be removed and the whole of the land of Israel is going to be turned into one plain. With one exception. And the exception is given in the rest of the verse. It says it. It's really she and it refers to Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be lifted up. Marvellous. And the hill on which Jerusalem stands is going to be even higher than it is today. With the result that wherever you live in Israel, you'll be able to see Jerusalem and be able to see the temple that God is going to establish on the top 
of that particular mountain. This is a distinct geographical change that will occur in the millennium. There it is. And uh, Jerusalem shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place, from Benjamin's gate unto the place of the first gate, unto the corner gate, from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepress. All right, and men shall dwell in it, there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And in Jerusalem, the Lord is going to build a temple, the millennial temple. And you know, one of the springs of water is actually going to flow under the east door uh, from, the from the altar that is actually there. For your own reading, it is well worth your while to read Ezekiel 40 to 48, which gives the description of the temple, gives a description of its architecture, gives a description of the priests who are going to function there. And do you know something? There will be animal sacrifices in the millennium at this temple. We're going to see why next time. But let's just end for tonight by going to Isaiah 2.2, which confirms the geographical changes that we found here. Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. Isaiah 2 and verse 2. Let's read it through. And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. In other words, it's going to be the tallest of many mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. We'll see these nations coming next time. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in those days the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's a picture of the most glorious spirituality. Every man will have full access to the information he needs concerning the Lord. Once a year, they'll go up to the temple to worship and there will be great rejoicing on the earth. Perfect environment. A climate that is so wonderful, it's unbelievable. Every field bringing forth a hundredfold and the Lord will be on the earth reigning. Next time, I'm going to talk about what is the church doing during this time, uh, what type of society exists, and what happens when Satan is released uh, at the very end of the millennium. For tonight, God bless you all. Amen.